So if I can go ahead and invite you to make your way to your seats. Um, by the way, I'm really impressed that so many of you guys made it out here today. It's cold outside. When I left the house this morning, there was sleet on my car. It's spring forward. I mean, who likes spring forward? Nobody. You lose an hour of sleep. That's not good. Anyway, glad you're here. And uh, just uh, to sort of situate you or orient you to where we are right now um, in uh, this uh, worship service, we are uh, really kind of coming to the very end of a series on the book of Ephesians. And so for those of you who have been here um, since the fall, you know that we've sort of been churning our way through this. And one of the things that you probably remember is that chapters 1 through 3 of the book of Ephesians are all about the gospel, all about the implications of the gospel, how God sees us as holy and blameless um, because of his son Jesus, how God um, drew us to himself. The Bible uses words like called and chosen and predestination, all these words that make us kind of uncomfortable, but they're all there in the book of Ephesians, and they're all bits and pieces of the gospel. They're all ways in which God has invited us into a relationship with himself. Then uh, we've been really covering um, chapters four through six, and chapters four through six are different. Uh, chapters 4 through 6 are really talking about, all right, if all this stuff in the gospel about the gospel is true, that God sees us as holy, as righteous, and that we're called to be his children, then how are we supposed to live? And that's really what chapters 4 through 6 have all been about. And so there's all sorts of language that's used in chapters 4 through 6. There's this sort of idea of the old self and the new self. And the old self is ma- marked by all this behavior that is uh, corrupting, that brings deterioration into relationships Um, with ourselves, with people that we love, and with God himself. And then it switches the analogy a little bit, and it talks about the way of darkness versus the way of light. And again, that same sort of theme there of deterioration and bringing corruption is present. And then it talks about how the way of light, on the other hand, brings human flourishing. And so again, all of uh, verses chapters 4 through 6 grow out of chapters 1 through 3. Now today we're going to find ourselves um, in a section of Scripture that talks about this theme of submission and self-sacrifice. Last week, Bob preached on one of the ways in which this submission and self-sacrifice plays out in the context of marriage. And today, we're going to be looking at uh, two other contexts in which these principles of submission and self-sacrifice play out. And so, before we start that, though, I'm going to take a moment. I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Um, I thank you for uh, caring for us as your children Father, I thank you for not leaving us in the darkness about who you are or how it is that we're supposed to live life. Father, I pray that you would um, even be at work in us this morning um, through fellow believers, through your Holy Spirit, um, through the word that we're getting ready to read together. And uh, Father, I pray that um, you would help us to see the depth of the gospel, that we would um, understand um, just how deeply we are loved by you and how much you've done to draw us back to yourself. Father, I also pray that you would enable us um, to see your pattern for humanity and that we would understand that this pattern um, of submission and self-sacrifice isn't this uh, random idea that you've pulled out of the sky, but it's really a picture of the Trinity and it's a picture of your son, Jesus. And so, Father, I pray uh, today that we would follow in the footsteps of your son. Father, we pray all these things now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So many of you um, in this room are probably familiar with a woman named Pat Summit. If you're not, um, we're going to have a little video clip in a minute that'll make you a little bit familiar with her. Uh, Recently, on a poll of the 100 greatest coaches in the history of the world, 
um, 100 greatest coaches in the history of the world. Uh, she was listed as number seven on this list. She was the women's coach at the University of Tennessee for 38 years. And uh, she won over 1,000 games. She coached two different Olympic teams, which won gold medals in the Olympics. She won eight national championships. She had all of these accolades. She was the first women's coach to earn over a million dollars a year. She was loved by her players. She was loved by the state of Tennessee. She was loved by the faculty. She was loved by the staff. She was loved by everyone. She was tough, but she also loved her players. She died in 2016 from the complications of Alzheimer's. And we're going to take a moment uh, very quickly now and see a little tribute to her, and then we'll jump into this text, and I'll explain more. Hustle back, guys. You're here. One person that definitely inspires me is my college coach, Pat Summit. You know, Pat has had an influence on so many people's lives. She's not only concerned about what we do on the basketball court, but even more importantly, she's concerned about what we do on the community. She's concerned about what kind of women we turn out to be. She's concerned about how we represent ourselves. There's so much more outside of basketball that Pat was concerned about. See, you got another cutter coming. Don't be, don't be too anxious to reverse the ball. Coach Summit is one of the strongest women I know. She's battled everything and just always has a positive attitude. Her message isn't just through words, but she actually lives it. And I think that that's what's so remarkable about her. Good, hustle down. Go. When people think of Tennessee, more than their men's coach, more than anything else, they think of Pat Summit, which is unheard of, as you know, in the sports world. I don't know how you can even put into words what she's done for the women's game. She's just Pat, coach to me and to somebody else. And they look at her from her basketball standpoint and from what she's been able to accomplish as a basketball coach. But she's way more remarkable than just being a basketball coach. Pat Summit has become the winningest coach in college basketball again with a 1,000 win plateau and total. Just remember this special night and think about all the people that made it possible. And that's everyone in this building and a lot of people that have been through this program that still love the Lady Vols with all their heart. Thank you. Some of you guys may be familiar with her career. You may be familiar with her death last year. But uh, one of the things, one of the reasons I chose to use her this morning as an opening illustration is because we're looking at two different sections of Ephesians today. Really, um, uh, verses 1 through 9 gives two different examples of submission and self-sacrifice. It talks about parents and children, and then really it talks about employers and employees. And what's interesting is there's a correlation in each of these verses, as we saw uh, at the end of chapter 5 with husbands and wives, of self-sacrificial leadership, sort of this image of a leader who sacrifices for the benefit of the person they're leading, and how then that in turn makes it possible for that person to submit to their leadership. And you really can't have one without the other in a healthy way. And so ultimately, Pat Summit, the reason that I used her today is I thought, okay, who can exemplify this parent-child relationship and this employer-employee relationship? And one of the things that I know about the most is coaching, and I thought she was a great example of that. And ultimately, Pat Summit exemplified what we're going to see in this passage we're going to read this morning. Her self-sacrificial leadership made it easy for her players to submit, right? They submitted to her, and as a result, they all won both on the court and off of it. Today, we see these very same principles of submission and sacrificial leadership in the parent-child and employer-employee relationship here that we see in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. 
We're going to jump into these verses really quickly, and we're going to unpack them, and I think you'll see uh, these principles playing out. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6 of the book of Ephesians. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Right? So we see this passage, all these words, and we'll get to them in a few minutes. But what we see in this passage, again, are these sort of principles of submission and self-sacrifice and how they play together. The first thing we see in this passage is that children are called to submit to their parents, right? This is another context in which we see this, these principles playing together. And so here's what we see in verses 1 through 3. It says this, children obey your parents. Again, that word obey there is the same word for submit that's used elsewhere in the passage. It's translated uh, obey here, but it means to place yourself under someone else. So children, place yourself under, submit, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And what that means is that this is the way that God designed it to be, right? This is the way that it works best. He designed the universe. He's the engineer and the architect of families and relationships. This is right. Honor your father and mother, This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Again, this is a a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God commanded you, and your days may be long, and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So children are called to submit to their parents. This is one of the the applications of the gospel that we see here in chapters 1 through 3. Now, let let me jump in really quickly and give some qualifications here to this. Because some of you grew up in homes um, with parents who were really difficult to obey um, or really difficult to honor. The first thing I think we see that needs to be qualified here is this doesn't mean that you obey your parents if they tell you to sin. Okay? This doesn't mean you obey your parents if they tell you to sin. Acts 5.29 says this, we must obey God rather than men. But in general, what we do see, however, is that we are to obey our parents at least until we become independent, Right? And so for the children in the room, and of course they've all been dismissed to a children's church, you're just going to have to tell them that's what BP said, and that's what the Bible said. But children are called to obey their parents until they reach a point of independence, right? But more importantly, and maybe more specifically uh, for that matter, is that we're to honor them, which is much more a matter of the heart, and it's actually a lifelong principle. It's one of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, this, uh, this passage about, you know, your father and mother talks about honoring them, which is a life long thing we're supposed to do, even if we're not to obey them uh, throughout the course of our lives. I think the last thing that I would sort of say in this passage is that honoring and obeying our parents leads to flourishing, right? Honoring and obeying our parents leads to flourishing. Listen to two Proverbs that talk about this. I read through the book of Proverbs now probably six or seven years ago with um, one of our children. And, uh, you know, when you read through a book of the Bible sort of in one, you know, big chunk and one big sitting, the themes really stick out to you. And one of the themes that stuck out to me is that obedience to parents really does lead to this idea, this concept, and a reality of flourishing. So Proverbs 1, verses 8 through 9. 
My son, hear the instruction of your father, and forsake not the law of your mother, for they shall be an ornament of grace unto your head and chains about your neck. And so part of what the writer of the Proverbs is saying here is that when you honor your father and mother, when you obey your parents, it will make your life beautiful, right? It will make you attractive. It will, it will actually help you to flourish. Part of what we see in Proverbs chapter 4 continues another aspect of obeying them and another yield of obeying them. Hear my son and accept my words that the years of your life may be many, right? Again, back to Deuteronomy chapter 5, that your years may be long upon the earth. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Part of what the writer of the Proverbs is saying here is when you honor your parents, when you obey your parents, then life works the way that it is supposed to work. And when you don't, this is the flip side, and the Proverbs talk about this as well, your life is miserable, and it doesn't work the way that it's supposed to work. Um, my sister is my illustration for this today. I have an older sister who's three years um, my senior. She's awesome. And uh, she was uh, really a good big sister in lots of ways, and she was lots of fun. Um, although being a fun big sister doesn't always necessarily mean you know, being healthy and a great big sister. But anyway, she was a little bit of both. But she was a little rebellious. She sort of um, wanted to do her own thing uh, often. And uh, so as a, you know, as a kid who was three years younger than her, I got to watch her put my parents um, through some pretty significant challenges and tests. She totaled three cars in high school. Um, she had her fair share of um, uh, uh, sort of covert uh, rebellious behavior, but then she had her fair share of overt rebellious behavior as well. And one of the things that became very clear and one of the things I learned in sort of watching her live life that way, not honoring my parents, not obeying my parents, is that I watched her and I was like, whatever she's doing doesn't work, right? It is making her life miserable. I mean, it's, you know, it's funny, as soon as she left to go away to college, it was like somebody let all the air out of our house. Like, I didn't get in trouble for the next four years. It was amazing. Like, my parents were so laid back. Every night we were ordering pizza and watching movies. It was great. But what's interesting is that uh, my sister is a believer, and when she became a Christian probably just right after college, it was amazing because all of a sudden she, she began, like, calling my parents every day and going to visit them and asking them, you know, how would you do this and how would you do that? She really began honoring them and obeying them even as she moved into adulthood, and it's amazing how quickly her life changed around. All those stories of wrecked cars and run-ins with authorities turned into a life that really was a life the way that God intended it to be. We, as children, are called to submit to our parents. We're called to obey them. We're called to honor them, and when we do so, our lives flourish. That's the first thing we see in this passage is that children are to submit to their parents. The second thing we see in this passage is that parents are to sacrificially lead their children. That makes the submission a lot easier when parents are willing to lay down their lives for their children to lead them. Beginning in verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. First thing we see in this passage is it's talking to fathers, and it's saying, fathers, don't provoke your children. Now, provoking your children to wrath or exasperating them usually happens because we're too severe in the way that we punish them, or it usually happens because we're, we crack down on them too hard and we miss their heart, right? You can also cause your children wrath and exasperation um, by being too disengaged, by too, being too withdrawn from them. It can happen either way, but frequently we see it um, as fathers who really aren't kind in the way that they discipline their kids. There are plenty of examples I could use about myself in this, but instead of throwing myself under the bus, 
I'm going to say, I'm going to sort of cite some scientific research that may be a part of this. Um, one of the reasons that this may be directed at men is it may be that fathers are more likely to discipline in ways um, that are very task-oriented and miss their kids' hearts. Um, there is a study that came out in 2014 by the National Academy of Sciences, and essentially this argument, and again, there's lots of debate on all of these, these uh, things, and there's lots of philosophical sort of reasons for the debates, but essentially your left brain essentially is where logic occurs, and your right brain is where emotion occurs and relational sort of weight is carried. Now, that's an oversimplification for any of our neuro people in the room, but in general, that's the idea. Here's what the research said. The research showed that on average, female brains are highly connected across the left and right hemispheres. In other words, there's lots of sort of work going back and forth, the logical side of the brain and the emotional side of the brain, right? It's going back and forth a bunch. It goes on to say, and the connections in male brains are typically stronger between the front and back regions as opposed to sort of left and right. Men's brains tend to perform tasks predominantly on the left side, which is the logical, rational side of the brain. Women, on the other hand, use both sides of their brain because a woman's brain has a larger corpus callosum. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> but what it means, if this, this research is correct, is that women can transfer data between the right and left hemispheres uh, faster and more adeptly than men can. And so that may be part of the reason that Paul is writing this is because maybe as men, the average man might operate and function more out of the logic side of their brain and have it be separated from the emotional relational side of the brain, in which case you can totally and utterly miss what honestly is probably the more important region of your child's world, which is their heart, right? That might be part of the reason that this direction is giving to fathers here. And so let me talk for a minute to dads in the room and just say this, or, or future dads or dads of even older kids. Um, the question from this, if this is partly true, then why is this? What's, what's the takeaway? And I would say the takeaway is this. Our tendency as men, when we run into something like this, is just to withdraw. Like, oh, well, if I know that I'm going to discipline my kids and I'm going to exasperate them, I'll just withdraw. Like, I'll just pull away. I'll let my wife handle that stuff. But let me tell you, that's just as harmful as if you were sort of too overbearing. Rather, what you need to learn to do, practice doing, is you need to learn to engage gently and humbly and patiently, right? That's what Ephesians 4 talked about, right? One of the implications of the gospel is as we interact with people, we do it now in gentleness and humility and patience, right? Let's take a moment and let's look really quickly at uh, that verse that I'm quoting. It says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, right? So as, as men, if that's true about our brains, we don't just get a pass. Rather, we're called to live in light of this calling that we have received as, as sons of God, holy and blameless in his sight. We've been shown mercy and grace. And here's what it says. With all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. And so fathers, how are we supposed to interact with our kids? Well, one, we're supposed to engage but two, when we engage, we're supposed to engage with all humility. I may be wrong here, right? All right? My perception on this might be off a little bit. That's humility. And with gentleness, right? There are times where we could be harsh. We could be firm. You know, we might even, the world might tell us we're justified in that, but we instead enter in with gentleness and we enter in with patience, right? Because the reason we're disciplining our children is we're bearing with one another in love. Don't withdraw. Do engage with gentleness, humility, patience, 
and in love, right? Do ask your wife for advice. If it's true, if this, you know, neuro research is true, then uh, it would make so much sense to turn to your partner in life, this person that God gave you, and to say, hey, here's what I'm thinking about this situation. Here's how I'm thinking about moving into it with our daughter or with our son. What do you think, right? Ask the advice of your wife. And then finally, do ask for forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness often and ask for forgiveness without qualification, right? If it's true that fathers are more prone to exasperate their children, then you're going to need to apologize more, right? Again, that takes humility, right? It also takes courage. Both of those are byproducts of the gospel. Ask your wife for advice. Ask for forgiveness often and without qualification, right? We are not to provoke our children to wrath. Next thing we see in that little passage is that we are not to provoke them to wrath, but we are supposed to nurture them, right? That's what it says, in fact. And I'm going to jump into that in just a second. Um, it says, you know, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and, uh, and the instruction of the Lord. That word that's phrased, bring them up right there, is actually an agricultural term. And so it really means to nurture. And so I don't know if you've ever seen someone who loves to work in their garden. Maybe they have a little flower garden. But they get out there, you know, and they water the flower garden and they pull weeds by hand and they trim the bushes and they care for the plants and sometimes they talk to the plants and instead of spraying poison on the plants to kill the bugs, they squish the bugs by hand. You know, like they, they nurture this little garden and that's the picture here, right? This is a picture that God is giving again to fathers, right? Don't provoke your children to wrath. Do nurture them, right? Engage with intentionality. Engage with passion, right? Help them grow, raise them up, protect them, right? In the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Eugene Peterson, the author of, uh, of the message, interprets that passage by saying this, take them by the hand and lead them in the way of the master. Fathers, take your children by the hand and lead them in the way of the master. Don't provoke them, do nurture them. Uh, one of my favorite books and movies is a, is a book called The Road. Here's a picture of the movie cover. And I don't know if you can see it very clearly, but there's a picture of Viggo Mortensen in front of his son. And what's interesting is he's standing in front of his son, first of all. He's leading him. And he's protecting him. His right hand is in front of his son. You can see that. And then his left hand is a gun. And for those of you guys who have ever seen the movie or read the story, you, you know that it's fundamentally, and Cormac McCarthy admits this in an interview, he says, the, the person interviewing Cormac McCarthy says, is, is this a love story for your son? And Cormac McCarthy went silent and turned red and admitted, he said, yeah, it's really, it's a love story for my son, but it's a picture of a father nurturing his son. If you read the story, if you watch the movie, they're sort of walking through this po post-apocalyptic existence, and all the way through, the dad's leading the son. They're trying to make it to the, uh, to the ocean. And so he's leading him, but all the way through, he's teaching him how to, you know, sort of scrounge for food and filter water and to watch out for dangerous situations. He is constantly nurturing his little boy. And again, the goal of all of this, the father knows that he's sick. He knows that he's probably going to die. And he's doing all this to, uh, to bring his son to a point of independence, right? And that's what we're called to do as parents. That's what we're called to do as fathers. We're called uh, to train and nurture and discipline, raise up our children. The goal is independence, but not independence from everything. It's not the freedom from all restraint. Rather, the goal is independence in the Lord, is what we're told in this passage. Because it's only when 
we walk and our children walk with God as God intended, that will truly be free. So children, submit to your parents. Fathers, self-sacrificially lead, nurture, train, equip, and love your children. Engage with your children with gentleness and humility, bringing them up in the way of the master. That's part of what we see in this passage, in this dynamic of parents and children, submission and self-sacrificial leadership. It'd be great to end there, but unfortunately, I have a preaching schedule that I've got to maintain, and so there are a few more verses here, and these verses cover another context of submission and sacrifice. Uh, The next section that we see in this is verses 5 through 8, and it's really written to employers and employees, and so let me make this case really quickly in verses 5 through 8. So it begins in verse 5 by addressing this to bond servants. Now, if you were to look at the Greek, you would see that um, the Greek word there is doulos, and so that means slave. And so if you were to read this in certain translations, you'd go like, whoa, slaves and masters, that's uh uh-uh, no good. All right, that is evidence that the Bible cannot be true. Part of what you need to understand here is that man-stealing, which is talked about in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is always condemned, right? It's always seen as a sinful practice. This, uh, what we're describing here, is really indentured servitude. It usually lasted till people are about 30 years old. And about a third of the people who lived in urban contexts would have been indentured servants, these bond servants here. And, uh, and what would have been the case is they would have actually been very thankful to have these, these jobs because in that era, the alternative would have been risk, uncertainty, and definitely poverty. It was just a different type of work situation. And, and so ultimately what we're talking about here are employers and employees. And so it says bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, right? Fear and trembling. Uh, that's an idiom. It means, it's kind of like sick and tired, but it ultimately means with respect or with reverence. So obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. In other words, submit to your employers, not for what you can get out of it, but rather for the platonic or the noble good, which in this case is to honor God. Verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. In other words, your ultimate reward isn't money. Your ultimate reward isn't pleasing your boss. Your ultimate reward is the affirmation of God, right? It's hearing good, uh, well done, good and faithful servant. So ultimately what this is saying is that we as uh, employees submit to our earthly employers because we're not working primarily for them, We're actually working primarily for God. Does that make sense? Our calling is to serve God. That's ultimately what Paul writes also in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 addresses the same principle and says this, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. As a part of what Paul is arguing here, and again, this is really a framework of the Trinity, it's a framework of our ontology of being created in the image of God, is part of what he's saying is when we work, we don't work for our earthly master. Ultimately, we're working to serve and honor God. There's a man named Brother Lawrence who was a Carmelite monk back in the 17th century. He wrote a little book called Practicing the Presence of God. I think I've read this quote before. I'm going to read it again. But it's a great image of how serving the Lord... um, ultimately is sort of this foundation for everything that we're called to do, whether it's work at the office or work at home. Here's what he says. He's talking about his life as a cook in a monastery. He says this, I turn my little omelet in the fire for the love of God. 
When it is finished, if I have nothing to do, I prostrate myself on the ground and worship my God who gave me this grace to make it, after which I arise happier than a king. When I can do nothing else, it is enough to have picked up a straw for the love of God. People look for ways of learning how to love God. They hope to attain it by I know not how many different practices. They take much trouble to abide in his presence by various means. Is it not a shorter and more direct way to do everything for the love of God, to make use of all the tasks one's lot in life demands, to show him that love and that love and to maintain his presence within by the communion of our heart with his? There's nothing complicated about it. One has only to turn to it honestly and simply. So what Brother Lawrence is saying here is he's saying whether I pick up a straw from the ground in the monastery, whether I term my omelet, whatever I do, I need to understand that all of my callings, again, whether it's in the office or whether it's at home, that, that I'm always called to honor and serve God in my work. So whether your work is at Barry or at Chick-fil-A or in the school system or in the home, be hardworking be honest, be a great employee, not for selfish reasons, right? Not because someone is watching you, but rather do it for the glory and the honor of God. Does that make sense? It's, it's really paradigm shifting here. It's saying, do what you do to honor and glorify him. You're ultimately working for God. Now, why would you do that? A couple things. When we do that, it's actually liberating, right? It's liberating in the sense that, you know, if, if you're longing for the affirmation of your boss, uh, and your boss isn't willing to give you that affirmation, you can still work for God heartily, right? Because ultimately it doesn't matter so much what your earthly boss thinks about you because you know you're doing it for God. And so it's liberating. The second thing we, I think is true is that when we serve um, our earthly bosses ultimately for God or on behalf of God, it actually just works. And uh, one of the things that Tim Keller makes a point of saying, I read a little passage that he wrote on this, and he said, if you work like this, your earthly bosses will fight for you right? Because you're working hard all the time. You're seeking to be honorable in all you do all the time because you're ultimately working not for your boss, but you're working for God. And that makes you an excellent worker. Another thing we see here is that it's ennobling. And so it's ennobling in the sense that when you're doing menial labor, picking up a straw, turning an omelet, changing a diaper, right? Entering data, that's all menial labor. And it's often easy to look down upon that labor. But under this paradigm, all work is given nobility, right? Because all work is directed by God, and all work is for the honor and the glory of God. One more qualification. Uh, Submitting to your earthly bosses doesn't mean you can't quit, right? It would have been hard for that to have happened as a bondservant. That doesn't have to apply to you. It also doesn't mean that you're not supposed to speak up. But what it does mean is while you're working for your earthly bosses, you need to submit ultimately not to them, but to God. Last thing we see in this passage is that in the same way that employees are to submit, employers are to sacrificially lead and serve their workers. Listen to verse 9. Verse 9 says this, Masters, do the same to them. That is, treat them with the same honor, treat them with the same dignity, treat them with the same grace and mercy and gentleness, remembering that your work of leading them is ultimately your way of serving God, and, uh, and again, not doing it out of what you can get, but ultimately doing it unto the Lord. The same principles apply. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Remember, both employees and employers serve the same master, that is Jesus Christ. And so, as employers or bosses, 
they're called to operate in the same uh, paradigm. They're called to lead their workers in the same way that Jesus leads us, in self-sacrificial service. There's a man named Arthur Guinness who started uh, Guinness Beer, and he started it back in 1759. So yes, I am using a beer illustration in the sermon. So for those of you who grew up in the South and in Baptist churches, just bear with me. Anyway, so, so back in the you know, you know, uh, mid-18th century, the water was horrible, especially this is around Dublin, and the water was incredibly polluted. People didn't understand the way that germs got transferred back then, and so if you drank the water, you'd get horribly sick. And so people would drink alcohol. They didn't understand why it didn't make them sick, but it, it would kill the germs. And so uh, there was a, a man named Arthur Guinness, and he was actually attending a sermon by John Wesley. So he was attending the sermon by John Wesley, and, uh, and I'm going to read uh, some things that sort of refer back to this uh, sermon and how it uh, served as an impetus to him starting the Guinness uh, Beer uh, Factory. Uh, he's listening to this sermon by John Wesley, and John Wesley says this, Earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. He would have insisted, Your wealth is evidence of a calling from God, so use your abundance for the good of mankind. On this Sunday and on other occasions when he heard Wesley speak, Arthur Guinness got the message and he got to work. This is from an article in Relevant Magazine. But Arthur Guinness added to all his good works by teaching his children the values he learned. His children then built the Guinness Corporation on the strength of their father's vision and faith. That is what became the great legacy of the Guinnessy family. The Guinnesses decided first that they could better society by bettering the lives of their employees, right? They decided to sacrificially serve. They started by paying better wages than any other employer in Ireland. Then they decided they should provide an entire slate of services to improve the lives of their workers. With the passing decades, they became one of the most generous, life-changing employers the world had ever known. Guinness's investment in their employees was impressive. If you had worked for Guinness in 1928, a year before the Great Depression, you would have had 24-hour medical care, 24-hour dental care, and an on-site massage therapy, right? This is like Google in 2016. In fact, some of you in the room now are like, if I get free beer and a massage, I'm quitting my job and going there right now. Anyway, he said, it goes on to say, in addition to this, your funeral expenses were paid by the company as well as the pension, your pension, with no contributions made by the employer or by the, uh, by the employee. Your education as well as your children and wife were all paid for. The company had libraries, reading rooms, athletic facilities, and so on. In other words, Arthur Guinness heard this message from John Wesley and understood that his wealth was to be used to serve the people he employed. Like, what in the world would it look like if Christian business people did that today? If we actually practiced self-sacrificial service and leadership of the people that we were called to serve so again, very quickly, we need to ask, so what? In the same way that employees are working primarily for God, those of us that are called as employers, too, we need to remember that we're, we are working primarily for God, right? We're stewards of what he has entrusted to us, our wealth, our expertise. We're to steward that for God, and we're to lead self-sacrificially and to serve self-sacrificially those people who are under us. And by the way, when we do that, it makes it so much easier for them to submit to us. Again, it leads to flourishing. It works. And not only that, but part of what we see here is that leading this way, self-sacrificially, leading and serving, it takes humility, right? Because all of a sudden, 
You need to expose yourself and be vulnerable to these people who you are leading. You need to listen to them. That takes humility, and it also takes courage. Self-sacrificial leadership leads to both humility and to courage, which are, of course, always produced by the gospel. So here in this section of just nine verses, ultimately we see these two principles of submission and self-sacrificial leadership and service. We see it playing out in parents and children. We see it playing out in employers and employees. But ultimately what you need to remember here is that God's not asking you to do anything uh, that he hasn't um, already done himself. If you look at this and you read throughout Scripture, part of what you see is that ultimately Jesus exemplifies all of these things, right? Jesus is the true son who submits to his father, right? He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, hey, by the way, I'm willing to die if that's what you absolutely need me to do, but if there's another way, let's go that route, but if not, I'll submit, right? And Jesus submits to his father to honor his father, but also in order to love us. Jesus is the one true son. Not only is he the one true son, but he's also the one true master. If you look at him leading and guiding the disciples, he's constantly um, loving them. He's constantly tweaking them. He's admonishing them. But overall, what he's doing is he's sacrificing for them, right? And he's sacrificing for us. He's not only the one true son, but he's the one true master who laid his life in order, laid down his life in order to serve us, in order to care for us. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, we thank you um, just for your word. We thank you for the gospel and we thank you for um, the outflowing of the gospel in our lives. Father, I pray that as believers, um, we would be seen as gentle and humble and patient. Father, I pray that as Christian parents, um, that we would be seen as those who self-sacrificially lead and serve um, those under us. Father, I pray um, that for those of us who are in positions where we have to submit regularly, I pray that you would remind us that ultimately that we're serving you. Father, for those of us um, who are employed, I pray that you would remind us of that same thing, that we're not serving ultimately our earthly bosses, but we're, we're serving you. And so, Father, I pray that we would do it for your honor and glory. And Father, for those of us that are put into positions of leadership, again, I pray that you would help us to sacrificially lead and serve those under our care in the same way that Jesus self-sacrificially led and laid down his life for us. And so, Father, it's in Jesus' name that we pray all these things today. Amen.